Volume Two, Chapter Forty One of The Marble Fawn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Marble Fawn by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Volume Two, Chapter Forty One. Snowdrops and Maidenly Delights. It being still considerably earlier than the period at which artists and tourists are accustomed to assemble in Rome, the sculptor and Hilda found themselves comparatively alone there. The dense mass of native Roman life, in the midst of which they were, served to press them near one another. It was as if they had been thrown together on a desert island, or they seemed to have wandered by some strange chance out of the common world and encountered each other in a depopulated city where there were streets of lonely palaces and unrecognizable treasures of beautiful and admirable things of which they too became the sole inheritors in such circumstances hilda's gentle reserve must have been stronger than her kindly disposition permitted if the friendship between kenyon and herself had not grown as warm as a maiden's friendship can ever be without absolutely and avowedly blooming into love on the sculptor's side the amaranthine flower was already in full blow but it is very beautiful though the lover's heart may grow chill at the perception to see how the snow will sometimes linger in a virgin's breast even after the spring is well advanced in such alpine soils the summer will not be anticipated we seek vainly for passionate flowers and blossoms of fervid dew and spicy fragrance, finding only snowdrops and sunless violets, when it is almost the full season for the crimson rose. With so much tenderness as Hilda had in her nature, it was strange that she so reluctantly admitted the idea of love, especially as, in the sculptor, she found both congeniality and variety of taste and likenesses and differences of character these being as essential as those to any poignancy of mutual emotion so hilda as far as kenyon could discern still did not love him though she admitted him within the quiet circle of her affections as a dear friend and trusty counsellor if we knew what is best for us, or could be content with what is reasonably good, the sculptor might well have been satisfied, for a season, with this calm intimacy, which so sweetly kept him a stranger in her heart, and a ceremonious guest, and yet allowed him the free enjoyment of all but its deeper recesses. The flowers that grow outside of those minor sanctities have a wild, hasty charm which it is well to prove. There may be sweeter ones within the sacred precinct, but none that will die while you are handling them, and bequeath you a delicious legacy, as these do, in the perception of their evanescence and unreality. And this may be the reason, after all, why Hilda, like so many other maidens, lingered on the hither side of passion her finer instinct and keener sensibility made her enjoy those pale delights in a degree of which men are incapable 
she hesitated to grasp a richer happiness as possessing already such measure of it as her heart could hold and of a quality most agreeable to her virgin tastes certainly they both were very happy kenyon's genius unconsciously wrought upon by hilda's influence took a more delicate character than heretofore he modelled among other things a beautiful little statue of maidenhood gathering a snowdrop it was never put into marble however because the sculptor soon recognized it as one of those fragile creations which are true only to the moment that produces them and are wronged if we try to imprison their airy excellence in a permanent material on her part hilda returned to her customary occupations with a fresh love for them and yet with a deeper look into the heart of things such as those necessarily acquire who have passed from picture galleries into dungeon gloom and thence come back to the picture gallery again it is questionable whether she was ever so perfect a copyist thenceforth she could not yield herself up to the painter so unreservedly as in times past her character had developed a sturdier quality which made her less pliable to the influence of other minds she saw into the picture as profoundly as ever and perhaps more so but not with the devout sympathy that had formerly given her entire possession of the old master's idea she had known such a reality that it taught her to distinguish inevitably the large portion that is unreal in every work of art instructed by sorrow she felt that there is something beyond almost all which pictorial genius has produced and she never forgot those sad wanderings from gallery to gallery and from church to church where she had vainly sought a type of the virgin mother or the saviour or saint or martyr which a soul in extreme need might recognize as the adequate one how indeed should she have found such how could holiness be revealed to the artist of an age when the greatest of them put genius and imagination in the place of spiritual insight and when from the pope downward all christendom was corrupt meanwhile months wore away and rome received back that large portion of its life-blood which runs in the veins of its foreign and temporary population english visitors established themselves in the hotels and in all the sunny suites of apartments in the streets convenient to the piazza di spagna the english tongue was heard familiarly along the corso and english children sported in the pincian gardens the native romans on the other hand like the butterflies and grasshoppers resigned themselves to the short sharp misery which winter brings to a people whose arrangements are made almost exclusively with a view to summer keeping no fire within doors except possibly a spark or two in the kitchen they crept out of their cheerless houses into the narrow sunless sepulchral streets bringing their firesides along with them in the shape of little earthen pots vases or pickings full of lighted charcoal and warm ashes over which they held their tingling finger-ends even in this half-torpid wretchedness they still seemed to dread a pestilence in the sunshine and kept on the shady side of the piazzas as scrupulously as in summer 
through the open doorways who need to shut them when the weather within was bleaker than without a glimpse into the interior of their dwellings showed the uncarpeted brick floors as dismal as the pavement of a tomb they drew their old cloaks about them nevertheless and threw the corners over their shoulders with the dignity of attitude and action that have come down to these modern citizens as their sole inheritance from the togated nation somehow or other they managed to keep up their poor frost-bitten hearts against the pitiless atmosphere with a quiet and uncomplaining endurance that really seems the most respectable point in the present roman character for in new england or in russia or scarcely in a hut of the eskimo there is no such discomfort to be borne as by romans in wintry weather when the orange trees bear icy fruit in the gardens and when the rims of all the fountains are shaggy with icicles and the fountain of trevi skimmed almost across with a glassy surface and when there is a slide in the piazza of st peter's and a fringe of brown frozen foam along the eastern shore of the tiber and sometimes a fall of great snowflakes into the dreary lanes and alleys of the miserable city cold blasts that bring death with them now blow upon the shivering invalids who came hither in the hope of breathing balmy airs wherever we pass our summers may all our inclement months from november to april henceforth be spent in some country that recognizes winter as an integral portion of its year now too there was a special discomfort in the stately picture galleries where nobody indeed not the princely or priestly founders nor any who have inherited their cheerless magnificence ever dreamt of such an impossibility as fireside warmth since those great palaces were built hilda therefore finding her fingers so much benumbed that the spiritual influence could not be transmitted to them was persuaded to leave her easel before a picture on one of these wintry days and pay a visit to kenyon's studio but neither was the studio anything better than a dismal den with its marble shapes shivering around the walls cold as the snow images which the sculptor used to model in his boyhood and sadly behold them weep themselves away at the first thaw kenyon's roman artisans all this while had been at work on the cleopatra the fierce egyptian queen had now struggled almost out of her imprisoning stone or rather the workmen had found her within the mass of marble imprisoned there by magic but still fervid to the touch with fiery life the fossil woman of an age that produced statelier stronger and more passionate creatures than our own you already felt her compressed heat and were aware of a tiger-like character even in her repose if octavius should make his appearance though the marble still held her within its embrace it was evident that she would tear herself forth in a twinkling either to spring enraged at his throat or sinking into his arms to make one more proof of her rich blandishments or falling lowly at his feet to try the efficacy of a woman's tears i am ashamed to tell you how much i admire this statue said hilda 
no other sculptor could have done it this is very sweet for me to hear replied kenyon and since your reserve keeps you from saying more i shall imagine you expressing everything that an artist would wish to hear said about his work you will not easily go beyond my genuine opinion answered hilda with a smile ah your kind word makes me very happy said the sculptor and i need it just now on behalf of my cleopatra that inevitable period has come for i have found it inevitable in regard to all my works when i look at what i fancied to be a statue lacking only breath to make it live and find it a mere lump of senseless stone into which i have not really succeeded in moulding the spiritual part of my idea i should like now only it would be such shameful treatment for a discrowned queen and my own offspring too i should like to hit poor cleopatra a bitter blow on her egyptian nose with this mallet that is a blow which all statues seem doomed to receive sooner or later though seldom from the hand that sculptured them said hilda laughing but you must not let yourself be too much disheartened by the decay of your faith in what you produce i have heard a poet express similar distaste for his own most exquisite poem and i am afraid that this final despair and sense of shortcoming must always be the reward and punishment of those who try to grapple with a great or beautiful idea it only proves that you have been able to imagine things too high for mortal faculties to execute the idea leaves you an imperfect image of itself which you at first mistake for the ethereal reality but soon find that the latter has escaped out of your closest embrace and the only consolation is remarked kenyon that the blurred and imperfect image may still make a very respectable appearance in the eyes of those who have not seen the original more than that rejoined hilda for there is a class of spectators whose sympathy will help them to see the perfect through a mist of imperfection nobody i think ought to read poetry or look at pictures or statues who cannot find a great deal more in them than the poet or artist has actually expressed their highest merit is suggestiveness you hilda are yourself the only critic in whom i have much faith said kenyon had you condemned cleopatra nothing should have saved her you invest me with such an awful responsibility she replied that i shall not dare to say a single word about your other works at least said the sculptor tell me whether you recognize this bust he pointed to a bust of donatello it was not the one which kenyon had begun to model at montebini but a reminiscence of the count's face wrought under the influence of all the sculptor's knowledge of his history and of his personal and hereditary character it stood on a wooden pedestal not nearly finished but with fine white dust and small chips of marble scattered about it and itself encrusted all round with the white shapeless substance of the block in the midst appeared the features lacking sharpness and very much resembling a fossil countenance but we have already used this simile in reference to cleopatra 
with the accumulations of long past ages clinging to it and yet strange to say the face had an expression and a more recognizable one than kenyon had succeeded in putting into the clay model at montebene the reader is probably acquainted with torvaldsen's threefold analogy the clay model the life the plaster cast the death and the sculptured marble the resurrection and it seemed to be made good by the spirit that was kindling up these imperfect features like a lambent flame i was not quite sure at first glance that i knew the face observed hilda the likeness surely is not a striking one there is a good deal of external resemblance still to the features of the faun of praxiteles between whom and donatello you know we once insisted that there was a perfect twin brotherhood but the expression is now so very different what do you take it to be asked the sculptor i hardly know how to define it she answered but it has an effect as if i could see this countenance gradually brightening while i look at it it gives the impression of a growing intellectual power and moral sense donatello's face used to evince little more than a genial pleasurable sort of vivacity and capability of enjoyment but here a soul is being breathed into him it is the fawn but advancing towards a state of higher development hilda do you see all this exclaimed kenyon in considerable surprise i may have had such an idea in my mind but was quite unaware that i had succeeded in conveying it into the marble forgive me said hilda but i question whether this striking effect has been brought about by any skill or purpose on the sculptor's part is it not perhaps the chance result of the bust being just so far shaped out in the marble as the process of moral growth had advanced in the original a few more strokes of the chisel might change the whole expression and so spoil it for what it is now worth i believe you are right answered kenyon thoughtfully examining his work and strangely enough it was the very expression that i tried unsuccessfully to produce in the clay model well not another chip shall be struck from the marble and accordingly donatello's bust like that rude rough mass of the head of brutus by michael angelo at florence has ever since remained in an unfinished state most spectators mistake it for an unsuccessful attempt towards copying the features of the faun of praxiteles one observer in a thousand is conscious of something more and lingers long over this mysterious face departing from it reluctantly and with many a glance thrown backward what perplexes him is the riddle that he sees propounded there the riddle of the soul's growth taking its first impulse amid remorse and pain and struggling through the incrustations of the senses it was the contemplation of this imperfect portrait of donatello that originally interested us in his history and impelled us to elect from kenyon what he knew of his friend's adventures End of chapter forty one volume two read by Lars Rolander